Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's Jill's pin is pants on fire because we're going to be talking about George Santos and what could represent him better than a pin that shows a pair of pants on fire. Liar, liar. Absolutely. This is the second week that Republicans are the majority in the House. Uh, Last week, we saw a flurry of really disturbing Republican actions, including the formation of the Weaponization of Government Subcommittee, chaired by Jim Jordan, which should tell you all about that subcommittee, uh, two abortion bills that would make it harder for women to access abortion care, but which won't pass the Senate. Uh, Republicans staying silent about George Santos, while numerous uh, New York lawmakers are calling on him to resign for fabricating numerous parts of his resume and possible FE see criminal violations here and in Brazil and spouting false equivalencies about Biden's possession of classified documents and that of Trump's. Um, What should we expect from House Republicans? How messy will it get? What should Democrats be doing to push back against this? Our guest today can help us answer those questions. He is Dan Goldman, someone I am sure you all know from either his work as the lead majority counsel in the first impeachment inquiry against Donald Trump, or from his work as lead counsel to House managers in Trump's subsequent impeachment. Um, Also, you know him, I'm sure, from his work on MSNBC, where I got to know him a little bit. And now as a congressman, Dan Goldman began his career as an Olympics researcher, which was something I just learned about you, Dan. I'm hoping you can tell us about that. (laughs) Then he went to law school at Stanford clerked for my Watergate colleague and good friend, Judge Charles Breyer, something else I didn't know about you, uh, before becoming a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, and then, as I said, a fellow MSNBC legal contributor. He's now a brand new member of Congress from New York's 10th Congressional District after defeating a very strong group of primary opponents. So thank you, Dan, for being with us today. We're really glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me, Jill and Victor. It's great to be with you. Of course. So, you know, you've been on the job for not even two weeks. and I'm sure that those two weeks or these less than two weeks have been a little bit different from what you expected. You it took you almost a week to get sworn into Congress. And I'm wondering what you make of your experience so far and specifically what Republicans have done uh, so far. Well, look, I think the Republicans have shown us um, how disorganized they are, how fractured they are um, and how unable to govern they are and will be. Um, But they've also shown us how extreme they are going to be in this conference. And and your rundown of some of their first bills uh, really goes to that, Victor. But one you didn't mention, which, you know, is perhaps the most hypocritical, uh, is their first bill, which was designed to roll back the hiring of tens of thousands of new IRS employees just to keep up with the pace of retirement so that uh, people can get an IRS agent on the phone when they call or so that 
uh, auditors can make sure that the wealthy and sophisticated uh, individuals and corporations are not cheating on their taxes. That bill would have raised the deficit by uh, what will raise the deficit if it passes the Senate, which I, I doubt it will, by $114 billion. So when we hear all about fiscal conservancy and we need to cut spending uh, in order to raise the debt limit, just remember that they all passed the this bill that would increase the deficit by $114 billion. It's really astounding, isn't it? But I want to jump ahead to George Santos right away because you and Richie Torres requested that the House Ethics Committee launch a formal investigation into him. So I'd like you to talk to us about what that investigation might achieve. Certainly, Joe. And I think the George Santos story, you know, from a a high level is is pretty well known at this point. Uh, We know from, you know, excellent reporting that unfortunately occurred after the election uh, that George Santos is a complete and total fraud. Uh, just about everything that he said about himself is a lie. Uh, his campaign finance disclosures and finances writ large uh, are blinking red lights um, and are highly, highly suspicious. It is not a crime uh, or even against election law to lie about name, your religion, your ethnicity, your education, your employment, your military history. It is a crime and against uh, the Office and Government, the Ethics and Government Act uh, to lie on your financial disclosures and to fail to file timely disclosures. So what this complaint to the Ethics Committee focused on that Congressman Torres and I filed is on his finances. We, we, understand from public reporting that there are a number of um, investigations ongoing into George Santos. I think the most significant of which uh, would be in the Eastern District of New York, U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, which does have jurisdiction over campaign finance fraud. Um, But there is no internal investigation of George Santos by the House to make sure that its members Uh, uphold the integrity of the office, uphold their oath of office, and abide by ethics and campaign finance laws. So our complaint requested an investigation by the ethics committee into his his campaign finances and his financial disclosures. But we also introduced an act, uh, a law, that would make lying about your educational history, your employment history, and your military history a crime as well. That's really important, especially uh, because I want to ask you, it seems to me like the Republicans are planning on gutting the House Ethics Committee. And so I worry that they aren't going to have the tools to look at even the things that they can, as opposed to the crimes that Santos may have committed in terms of the financing, either where the 700,000 he contributed to his campaign came from, or just in terms of lies to raise money. That is a fraud case. Uh, So there may be some crimes, but in terms of Congress's ability, is what their plans are for the Ethics Committee going to kill that? So it's it's a little complicated and convoluted. And I've actually spent some time trying to understand exactly what their rules change uh, does. The rules change that they enacted 
actually guts the Office of Congressional Ethics, which mm-hmm. is a supplemental uh, office designed to investigate, you know, ethical wrongdoing by by members. Um, separate and apart, though, from the House Ethics Committee, the OCE, as it's called, often will conduct investigations, and then if there is uh, any finding of wrongdoing they would refer those investigations to the House Ethics Committee for further investigation and potential accountability. We filed a complaint, as members are only allowed to do, directly with the Ethics Committee uh, for them to conduct an investigation. And according to the Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, who confirmed last week that this is in ethics and this will go forward, we fully expect the Ethics Committee to conduct this investigation of Mr. Santos. The only reason, and Jill, you'll appreciate this, that they may, they may wait on it is if they get an indication from any criminal law enforcement authorities mm-hmm. that they are conducting an investigation and they would ask the House Ethics Committee to hold on their investigation. And normally my understanding is, and and for good reason, the ethics committee usually does abide by those requests. And, and what is Kevin McCarthy's role in all of this? Uh, He now admits that he knew in advance about some of the lies and he's appointing Santos to committees. So what's going on there? I, I think the, the, the focus of this story is going to quickly change from George Santos's lies to the degree to which Republican leadership both knew about it and participated in the cover-up of his lies uh, in order to help Santos deceive the voters and ultimately get elected. Uh, the New York Times reporting from Friday, an excellent story, uh, revealed that that Kevin McCarthy knew about the uh, the vulnerability study, the self research that George Santos commissioned, and which included a litany of lies and caused a number of members of his campaign team to resign. That McCarthy knew about that. Um, that at least Stefanik knew about that. The chair of the Republican conference who was George Santos's biggest supporter, endorser, raised money for him, and perhaps most relevant to this story, had a top political aide almost embedded in Santos's campaign to assist him Mm. uh, in hiring new staff members, notwithstanding all the lies, and in in helping his campaign uh, win the election. And so the question now really becomes... How broad was were these lies? Was this scheme to defraud uh, known? And what involvement did top leadership have in trying to cover up the lies? And in order for Santos to win, you'll remember the New York Post reporting in December, which said Republican leadership knew about it and they, th- they talked about it as a running joke. Well, I think most of the American people don't think that free and fair elections are a joke. And so it will be interesting to see whether uh, Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik practice what they preach when they talk so much about transparency. 
I mean, they, they really have no values anymore. And I want to ask you about this. You, you mentioned, I think, the word fracture before, and I think we're seeing no clear indication of that uh, in the difference between what GOP lawmakers in New York are saying versus GOP lawmakers in Washington, D.C. So I'm, I'm wondering why you think that's the case, why people from his own state are calling him for him to resign. But people in Washington, you know, I think maybe the latest count is six Republicans have said that they want him to resign, but everyone else is either silent or still says, you know, this should be left to the Democratic process. What's your response to that? Right. I think that there are six New York Republicans um, who have now called for his resignation, Mm -hmm. uh, two Republican members uh, outside of New York. So I think we are up to eight. And I think what you're what you're seeing is that divide in the Republican Party. The New York Republicans know that George Santos's lies are a huge albatross for the entire party within New York and for their future reelection efforts and any additional efforts to get uh, to increase Republican membership and participation uh, and support within New York state, New York state, of course, the Republicans are, are generally other than Elise Stefanik more moderate than you're going to find around the country. But what Kevin McCarthy and the leadership is also playing to is first of all, a numbers game. Um, because they only have a majority of four. If Santos resigns, it's, it's quite possible, even likely, that a Democrat will win, and that will be a huge um, that'll be a huge seat that could be lost. And then separately, um, you just have this extreme right that will never give in, and that is anti-democratic, is authoritarian is win at any cost, at all costs, even if you just blatantly lie to your voters and all they care about is power. Um, and so they, they have no interest in losing someone else for their majority. So, go ahead, Joel. I was just going to say, you mentioned before um, about legislation that you had proposed to make Santos responsible for lying. Um, so can you tell us a little more about what would be included in that and how that would work and also any comments you might have on crimes that he might be responsible for here and in Brazil. Right. There's a lot to the story. Uh, It seems like every day we learn something new um, about how he either deceived the public or may have uh, committed uh, additional crimes. Um, The the law that, that Congressman Torres introduced, which is stop another non-truthful office seeker, uh, the Santos Act, um, is really just designed to make uh, make people's representations about their own personal biography and history um, punishable by by a crime, I mean, against the law, I should say. So um, the idea of it is, and, and we, of course, don't see why this wouldn't get bipartisan support. It's just to prevent people from lying to their electorate about their uh, educational background, their employment history, and their military history. Um, There's no good argument against um, passing a law that requires people to tell the truth. And so we do hope that eventually we can get some bipartisan support so that this will not happen. But one of the things, Jill, that that you will know as well, that certainly will be a uh, a warning sign to any federal investigators looking into George Santos is the fact that he appears to, or at least reportedly, 
have admitted to committing check fraud to com- basically writing checks mm-hmm. in someone else's checkbook for his own benefit in Brazil. Um, certainly when I was a prosecutor, if someone was previously convicted of a crime, it would cause me to take a cl- prompt me, I should say, to take a closer look at whatever their conduct is that I was investigating. And so I'm sure that the Eastern District of New York mm-hmm. it recognizes that, you know, someone who has committed a, fr- a fraud in the past may be more likely to commit fraud uh, ongoing. And I think the real issue here is this uh, sudden windfall of wealth that he appears yeah. to have gotten to go in 2020 from a salary of $55,000 to a disclosure, a very, very untimely financial disclosure, mind you, in 2022, that shows him with a $500,000 apartment in Rio de Janeiro, a salary of $750,000, assets and dividends of more than a million dollars. Where did this guy go? And by the way, he says that the entity that he created during his campaign, created it during his campaign, that that what that what he did at that entity was the same thing that he was doing before that got him fifty five thousand dollars a year. So there are just so many red flags here. But the thing that is very suspicious is, as you pointed out, Jill, he gave himself seven hundred thousand dollars. He gave his campaign seven hundred thousand dollars which he also has admitted publicly that he got that money because he, uh, he, he said, I paid myself from that entity. Well, where did, where did the money from that entity come from? And he didn't mention any clients on his financial disclosures, which he is obligated to do. And so the question then becomes, was this entity formed as a pass-through to allow I, donors who to either exceed campaign finance limits or perhaps donors who would otherwise not be authorized to donate uh, to American elections, such as foreigners, to give to Santos by essentially funneling the money through his entity, then to himself and then to the campaign. Um, and so I expect that I'm certain that the uh, Eastern District of New York will be looking into those transactions. We can only hope that's true. And, you know, while I'm delighted that you're in Congress, too bad you're not in the Eastern District of New York asking exactly those questions, because I think he is going to go to jail for crimes. It's it just there's too much smoke for there not to be a fire. And, um, you know, go back to my Watergate era. Follow the money. You're going to find something there. Yeah. I mean, I, I really hope accountability happens and, and partly because it's, you know, we can't normalize this type of behavior. And, um, you know, there are reports that maybe we even maybe shouldn't be calling him George Santos. He may not even be going by that name. And so um, hopefully we will get some accountability and, and some truth out of this. But I want to turn more broadly to this Republican Congress because um, they've announced that they're going to be forming these investigations to look into uh, the Biden administration. And today, actually, right before we went uh, live, um, Jake Sherman from Punchbowl tweeted that there are numerous uh, committee assignments now. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, um, uh, Scott Perry will all be serving on oversight along with other election deniers. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what you make of some of the committee assignments that have happened so far, these investigations and, and what their end goal is with all this, because poll after poll shows that Americans don't approve of these things. They just want normalcy. Um, what do you think is their goal with all of this? 
I think the goal is to appease the far right extremist wing of their party. Um, and that's why this uh, subcommittee on what they call the weaponization of the federal government, I call it the subcommittee to obstruct justice, um, was created. And it is shocking how that resolution reads because it allows for this, uh, this subcommittee to investigate ongoing criminal investigations, which, you know, as, as Jill knows, as a former prosecutor as well, that will never happen. It should never happen. It is a complete violation of separation of powers. Um, and there's no way that the Department of Justice should give Congress any information about ongoing investigations, which will either be illegal if it's grand jury information or will compromise the investigation significantly if there's any information that's disclosed. But the reason for that is quite obvious. Yes, of course, it is to protect their dear leader, Donald Trump, from the investigations into him, but it's also to protect themselves. Scott Perry, as one example you just mentioned, had his cell phone seized pursuant to a court authorized search warrant based on a finding of probable cause that the phone contained evidence of a crime. Scott Perry is under investigation, and right. yet he wants to be on this subcommittee or maybe on this subcommittee. Uh, along with others who may be subjects of investigation. They literally have created a committee to undermine an investigation into themselves. And that is the height of obstruction of justice. It's hard to imagine anything, uh, anything worse than that. And so, well, I, you know, it's, well, that to me is where a lot, I think, of the action is going to be. There's no question Jim Jordan is going to spearhead that committee. They've given that committee... Uh, tremendous resources. They've given that committee access to all of the uh, intelligence communities, classified top secret information, uh, which is normally only available to the House Intelligence Committee, but they've given them that access as well. This is truly going to be a witch hunt committee, and I think it's going to be incredibly dangerous uh, to our democratic institutions writ large. I think that's one of the biggest points that we should emphasize because I totally agree with that. And it's not just separation of powers that's at risk. It's due process. The people who are being investigated by the Department of Justice have rights and it cannot go to the public forum of Congress. But let's stay on this prosecution uh, role and move to the Biden document case. Merrick Garland, of course, has appointed a special counsel to look into the situation uh, a different special counsel than is looking at the Trump documents. And we've all heard, but I, I want our listeners today to hear this as well, that um, there are very big differences. It, to me, it's apples and rotten apples. It's not even apples and oranges. That the, the differences far outweigh to me the similarities. But what do you think and how damaging is it politically not just, I mean, legally, I'm going to say there's nothing there. But what about politically? Look, it's, I think for those who spend very little time paying attention to the details beyond that uh, there was classified documents found at the residences of the current president and the past president, um, that it's easy to see how one might, if they're not paying much attention, think that those are equivalent. But as you say, Jill, it is that's where the similarities stop. 
Um, and I think it's important to, when you start talking about special counsel investigations, uh, to point out those differences. We need to accept one thing, which is it's very problematic to have classified documents discovered in non-classified locations. And I, I think President Biden will acknowledge that. Um, sadly, Donald Trump doesn't acknowledge it, but there's no dispute that that is very serious. What President Biden's team did, at, no doubt at his direction, is that as soon as they discovered these documents, they immediately self-reported and volunteered the information that they're required to do by statute to the archives and ultimately to the Department of Justice. They then cooperated and turned over those documents to the Department of Justice and have insisted quite clearly that they will continue to cooperate with the Department of Justice to make sure that any classified materials gets back to where it belongs and a damage assessment is done. On the other hand, the archives, realizing they didn't have Donald Trump's love letter to Kim Jong-il, um, decided, re recognized they didn't have all of the documents from Trump. And so they asked him for the 15 boxes he took. It took months and months and months for Trump to voluntarily turn those over. He then turns them over, but they realize they don't have everything. So they ask again. Now it goes to the Department of Justice. And they ask. They don't get them. They subpoena the documents. They still don't get them. Donald Trump is now obstructing justice in order to maintain possession of these classified documents. So then the Department of Justice has no recourse other than to execute a search warrant to retrieve those documents which belong to the government and do not belong to Donald Trump anymore. And so that's where we are. President Biden had no, clearly had no intent to either possess these or do anything with them. But the fact pattern that I just recited makes it draws a clear inference that Donald Trump must have wanted to do something with those documents, because why would he defy a subpoena for them if not? And it's that intent to that is really at the core of the two different special counsel investigations. I mean, they are so different. And um, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we can all agree, at least, though, that um, none of them should have had these classified documents. So I'm wondering if you think that there are any new laws or um, rules that you can pass or introduce in Congress regarding this retention of classified documents um, that you think are worth passing. Well, look, there, there are laws and there are, you know, regulations um, that are, are very clear as to what to do. It gets a little tricky when you're dealing with, you know, a president, a vice president. They're receiving daily briefs that include classified information, even though the, you know, documents themselves are not the uh, reports of that of the classified info. Um, and so you have memos lying around, you have briefings lying around that, that have the markings on them as classified. Um, but, but clearly we need to make sure that there are proper protocols and procedures to handle the briefings, the memos, um, because that they, we just cannot have these, these things lying around. And so, look, I'm, I, I was a staff member on the Intelligence Committee. I am certain that the House Intelligence Committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee are going to look very closely at the underlying facts, um, you know, the underlying issue of how these classified materials 
are leaving the areas where they are required to be. Right. Right. It seems to me that if libraries can control books going in and out and get them returned, that there has to be a way to make sure that the classified documents that are given to various people are returned and that there is a better tracking system. So that's something that I hope, um, well, first of all, I just want to make sure we don't want to run out of time with you. Um, and we have so many more questions. We hope you'll come back again. Um, maybe I could ask uh, a, one wrap up question and then Victor can ask his favorite last question. Um, and you've now gotten some committee assignments, I believe. And so talk to us about what committees you're on and what you hope to achieve uh, in Congress. Um, the Democrats actually have not yet gotten our committee assignments. We are waiting on the Republicans to figure out the ratios. Somewhat oddly, it seems like the speaker is determining uh, who he's going to give various committee assignments to before he figures out the ratio. Maybe he has so many uh, backroom deals to give himself the speaker's gavel that he can't count how many people are on each committee. But in any event, uh, we expect that we will get our committee assignments either the end of this week or probably next week when we're back in Washington. But I, I do hope to lean into my experience um, with investigations. Obviously, the Republicans are prioritizing investigations um, that are clearly political, partisan propaganda um, that I'd love to be able to respond to and help to point all of the holes that will undoubtedly be there. And so, but, you know, I think there are a lot of really capable people on the Democratic side to be able to do that as well. So we'll see what happens. There are, but I can just envision you facing off against Jim oh Jordan. My gosh. That would be amazing. Brilliant. Amazing. <laughs> wonderful. Um, so one last question that we have for you, you know, Jill mentioned at the uh, beginning that you were first an Olympics researcher, and then you obviously went into law school, and then you became a very well-known uh, prosecutor and, and serving on the, you know, for the House impeachment inquiry, and then MSNBC, and then you ran for office. And so I'm wondering, the last question I always like to ask people is, um, what is your advice to young people um, about politics and elected office? Um, with you, you have a fascinating journey um, in getting there. And so what is your advice to someone who's thinking about doing that? But you also have to tell us what an Olympics researcher <laughs> is, please. <laughs> Sure. It was, it was a, an amazing job, basically, for the NBC's coverage of the Olympics. Um, they, had, they hired three of us researchers who essentially traveled the world and became experts on all of the Olympic sports so that the 6,000 employees uh, of NBC, or I should say 2,000 employees of NBC could know everything they needed to know for the Olympics. Wow. I did that for the Sydney Games in 2000. It was a great, great job. You know, I think my career path, Victor, to your question, and I love, you know, talking to younger people about uh, career paths because my biggest lesson is don't get locked in to what you want to do. Um, you need to have, uh, you need to be open-minded and you need to be flexible to pursue uh, either opportunities that are presented to you or different interests that evolve over time. Uh, I thought I would try out journalism. I really enjoyed my job, but I didn't see for me personally, a career path that I wanted to pursue. So I, I actually went to law school originally to do impact litigation and civil rights work. I then ended up clerking for Jill's old colleague, uh, Chuck Breyer, who was an assistant <laughs> district attorney 
And he really encouraged me to think about becoming a, a prosecutor. And that, you know, that that was a formative year for me where I had such a great mentor and Judge Breyer. And so I followed, you know, his footsteps. And then five years ago, I left the U.S. Attorney's Office. I can guarantee you that it never once crossed my mind on my five year plan that I would be a, a member of Congress. So yeah, yeah. A part of it is just, you know, being being willing to take some risks and being open to different paths that you might not have planned for. That's such great advice. And um, I'm so grateful that you were able to spend time with us. I hope you'll be willing to come back. I hope our listeners and viewers will stay with us uh, after you leave for more of Victor and I having a chit chat. Thank you so much. Representative Goldman for coming on. Thank you guys. Take care. So Jill, that was such yes. an interesting episode. I, I first want to ask you, you know, I, we mentioned the classified documents thing, and, and I'm wondering what the process like was for you, because I remember I, you know, I was just a low-level intern at the White House over the summer, and they walked me through this uh, presentation at the end where basically they just told me that I couldn't walk away with any classified documents, and I didn't. So I'm wondering what the process <laughs> was like for you, because um, you were in the Pentagon, you were also you know, at the Department of Justice. Uh, has well, anything... let, me, let me start with the Department of Justice, and the yeah. first time... That I, you know, of course, I had a security clearance uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at Justice, but it was a very low level clearance. And the first time I requested some documents from our files, I got a note saying that I had to upgrade my security clearance to get them. I was like, this is so weird. You know what they turned out to be? They were actually newspaper clippings. <laughs> I was in the organized crime section. This was about members of the mafia. And I'm like, these are public records. They're and it's, I guess the thing that was secret about it was that we were tracking these people, but they were well-known members of the mob. So it was like yeah. the weirdest thing that that would be my first encounter with classified information. Right. Obviously, when I got to the Pentagon as general counsel, uh, both to the Army and to the Panama Canal um, Corporation, which was in the process of handing back the canal to the Panamanian government. Yeah. And then shortly after that, uh <laughs> indicting and jailing Noriega. Um, I had a much higher security clearance, one that uh, I can't tell you the name of my clearance because that's classified information. Yeah, yeah. But we were very careful about documents. It would have never occurred to me that I could take them anywhere outside of the Pentagon, that they would go in my briefcase and go home with me. No, absolutely not. But there was no real system of like labeling each one with a number that this is copy one of mm -hmm. 10 mm -hmm. so that you would know immediately if something was missing, there was no tracking device on it. There was yeah. no yeah. way of knowing, you know, whether it got lost somewhere or thrown away by mistake. So I think for me, there has to be some legislation put in place that puts restrictions on the handling that everyone knows about, but that keeps tracking those documents mm -hmm. so that they aren't accidentally taken. I think also when a, a president or vice president is packing up, the packing up should be done by someone other than just so, yeah, exactly. the staff. It yeah. needs to be done yeah. by people who have a classification levels that allow them to see top, top secret, uh, special compartmentalized information as well. 
it has to be done by someone who knows what they're looking for. Um, and there is a rule, which I think many people don't know, that things can be stored for, I think, up to 60 days after your term of office ends. So this excuse that it's a big rush really isn't true. Yes, you have to get out of your office to make room for it, the next incumbent, but there is a way to put it out of your office and not remove it from the building. So yeah. I think we need to start really looking at all those things. Absolutely. Well, let's go into our chit chat. Um, so I, I know we, we have some, there's, there was an interesting article that came out yesterday, basically on CNN. I'm not sure how many in our audience has uh, read it yet, but basically it talked about how there's this new trend among Generation Z to go back to this thing called vintage tech, which is basically um, this, there's this new trend to go back to flip phones. Um, a lot of people now, uh, when they go out to eat, they will trade their social, um, uh, I guess their, their regular uh, smartphones with flip phones because they want to be more I guess, connect uh, like older people may have once did. And so I'm wondering what you thought of that. I, I personally haven't done that yet, um, but I thought it was a pretty interesting uh, development. And they're also using disposable cameras now too. And so there's this new, uh, I guess, push to to return to simpler times. Well, disposable cameras, of course, require that you print out a copy of it. You don't keep yes, it on your exactly. computer. There's nothing else you can do with it. Um, flip phones, of course, I remember. I remember when there were what we called bricks. I don't know if you've even ever seen one of those. They were really big things. That, I think I know what you're talking about. And my first, when I first joined Motorola, my first assignment was in Pakistan, which was way behind you know, where we were. They wanted those bricks so they could go to lunch and put them on the table so everyone would see that they owned a phone. It was a point of pride. Right. In in terms of, you know, I read this article and I think we should put it in our show notes mm -hmm. so that everybody can read the article. My first reaction was, if you want to connect with people, and I adore, Victor, that you telephone me. We actually talk on the phone at least once or twice a day. Whereas a lot of younger people that I've mentored or that are related to my godchildren, they actually text. They think that that's a conversation. That's not a conversation, guys. Talking on the phone is a conversation. Right. Zooming is a conversation. And so I love that you call, but it seemed to me that rather than getting an old-fashioned flip phone, you could just turn your phone off and talk to the person you're having dinner with. I cannot stand when I see couples sitting in a restaurant and they're both sitting there with their phone and they're not talking to each other. Right, right. You know, that just, it's, t I, I personally think a phone is a safety device. I would never get in a car without it. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to talk while I'm in the car. It means that in an emergency, I have a phone. The same, you know, the pictures you're going to take on your phone are better than the pictures you're going to take on the little disposable camera. Cameras. <laughs> Although yeah. they, they, they take pretty good pictures. They're not bad. I mean, it, it's okay. Um, but I, I think um, I, going to another area, as part of this vintage tech, people are going back to vinyl records. And, you know, <laughs> right. I've lived yes, through they are. 78s, yeah. 45s, and then cassette tapes, and then discs. And I remember when I first became the head of career and technical education for Chicago Public Schools, at the beginning of school year, a memo comes out saying things teachers should never say to students. And one of the things that was top of the list was never say you sound like a broken record <laughs> because no student was going to know what that meant. 
And so I'm really sort of pleased that you'll now know what a broken record sounds like. Yes, and yep. it's just mm -hmm. really weird. On the other hand, my generation is getting advice about how to use modern technology, which I'm pretty good at. Um, but we're also getting advice. There was a picture of President Biden trimming his own tree in the White House. And Jill Biden was handing him, he was standing on a ladder, she was handing him some stuff. And it said, it went through how many people end up in the emergency room because in the, the intensive care unit as yeah. a result of ladder falls, saying that people my age should not get on ladders. And mm -hmm. I recently had a ladder fall where I hit the back of my head on my granite counter. Yeah. Luckily, mm -hmm. nothing happened. But my friends insisted that I go to the emergency room to get an MRI because you can die from a oh, yeah, bleed. Yeah. And people mm -hmm. have, you know, they feel fine. I felt fine. I, I never passed out. I wasn't dizzy. I did go. I was fine. But, you know, if you do fall and hit your head, you should immediately get a test because people die the next day. And so anyway, it's just it's sort of funny to see the kind of advice my generation gets and and your generation going back to flip phones. Uh, well, you know, I... you, you mentioned, I mean, the, the fact that I call you, I mean, Jill, you know that I'm an old school person, so yes. I, I maybe that isn't much of a surprise, <laughs> but no, I, um, you know, I thought that article was really interesting and I agree with you. And I think I, 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 I told you this yesterday when we were talking, but I recently went out to eat uh, at a college restaurant and you know, my friend and I, we looked up and everyone was on their phones and it's like, okay. okay, like, you know, it's, it's depressing. And maybe flip phones would help that. Cause there's not much to look at, I guess, on your flip phone. I, I've never had one before, but I guess it's just, you know, numbers and you have the little screen and you make a phone call. And so maybe that does, that's a way that young people can, can be accountable and, and stay off their smart devices. Yeah. If you're using it just for security purposes to have a phone with you in case you needed to make an emergency phone call, fine. But don't you have the willpower to have the phone on you yeah, yeah. and not play a game, not look at your emails, not do Wordle. I mean, mm -hmm. it, there's so much, you know, there's there's time for that. It will always yeah. exist. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And talk to the person you're having dinner yeah. with. Take a break from the screen. It's good mm -hmm. for your psychology. It's good for your eyes. It's just a good thing to do. So yeah, exactly. uh, I, I thought it was an interesting article. And I, I love that people, on the other hand, they are little teeny phones and you can put them in your pocket anywhere. easily, yeah, yeah, yeah. anywhere. You know, it's in the smallest evening purse. I could fit that. Whereas my smartphone. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> this is mine. Whoops. It, it's it's a big thing. It doesn't fit everywhere, but it it's it makes it easy to watch a video and stuff. It's I, I love that. Um, and that I love what the phone yes. does. I mean, when I started practicing law, there were no computers. There were oh, wow. no computers. Now I have more computer power in this than in the first computers that you know, came you know, out. It, it reminds me, you know, when, when you talk about, you know, uh, our generation thinking that texts are a form of conversation. I remember I was talking to someone who is, um, uh, who was born a while before, and, and she was telling me how back in the day, how people used to ask each other to prom. And, and I was like, oh, how did they ask each other to prom? And they would have to go through the landline. And so it would first connect yes. to the parents, and then they would have to talk to the parents and say, can I talk to so-and-so? Um, and it was like, you know, those are the type of things where I'm like, that's like that's a conversation. You have to listen to the other person, and there's just nothing like that now. You either text someone or you, maybe you, I don't know, ask someone on social media, but there there really isn't anything like that anymore. And I wish we could go back to the time where you you could make a phone call. Like we can normalize those things again. It was very romantic. And that's actually, uh, maybe we can close with, 
when during Watergate, my high school boyfriend saw my picture in the paper and he wrote me a letter, which he had called information to get my address so he could mail in snail mail style because there was no other alternative. Yeah. He mailed me a letter um, saying, you know, he was so proud of seeing me uh, in the news and of what I was doing. And um, we, I eventually answered him and we got together and got engaged three days later. So <laughs> it all started with the New York Times having a print edition that he saw uh, uh-huh. and then yeah, went yeah. to a snail mail letter through a phone book. Does anybody even know what a phone book is anymore? I mean, when I was writing my book, I, as I was writing things like the press jumped up to use a bank of payphones, I went, does anybody know what a payphone is anymore? And um, so there's a lot of things from our past that um, that I consider sort of romantic, but I'm, I don't miss them particularly. I like being able to pick my phone out and make a phone call without finding a public payphone and putting coins in it. Although that wasn't such a bad thing either. Absolutely not. Well, we will definitely include that in the show notes for this week's episode. And let us know what you think, because I thought it was fascinating. Jill also thinks it's very interesting. And, um, you know, we'll see whether or not this produces maybe better conversations, whether or not this changes. Well, maybe we'll we'll see more young people on flip phones and carrying around disposable cameras now. Maybe it'll feel like the 19, I don't know what year that was, 1990s. (laughs) Early two thousands, uh, no, way before that. Oh, nineteen eighties. Okay. Oh, seventies. Yeah. Um, phones, so- phones. When did? Well, I got my first phone. I think before I worked at Motorola. Maybe oh. I don't remember. It could have been the that. It was at least the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let us know what you think of that article, and we hope you enjoyed this uh, episode with now Congressman uh, Dan Goldman, who we'll definitely have uh, again as these investigations ramp up. I know, like he said, hopefully the committee assignments will be on oversight and judiciary so that he can push back against that. And we can see that Dan Goldman, Jim Jordan brawl. Uh, I think that would be uh, not only entertaining, but good for democracy to see someone push back against Jim Jordan. So um, stay tuned. Hopefully we can get him back here on the show. And we'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics right here on youtube.com slash Politicon or wherever you follow your podcast. So whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can uh, listen to this episode uh, there and be sure to leave us a five-star review right there so other people can find it. Um, we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening and uh, have a great rest of your week.